you know, you have this vision of what success means as a business person. Over time, I came to see that I can be happier with a different version of success that doesn't have to be a growing company or a million employees. Do you remember that feeling at school when you were wrestling with a problem or one of those terrible word problems they gave us in maths or and you suddenly had a breakthrough where you figured it out for the first time and then after that everything was easy or if you've ever been playing a video game where you just couldn't get through a specific level or solve a problem and then all of a sudden you do and, and you wonder why it was ever so difficult in the first place. Well, I remember in the very early days of social media, back in the days when I was just dreaming of, of starting a business and spending a lot of time uh, writing articles and blogging and, and doing talks about what social media was and could be uh, for the world. I stumbled across a series of animated explainer videos by a company called Common Craft that blew my mind because the way they explained these topics was just so completely unique and so human and so useful. I hadn't seen anybody really do it that way before and they were deeply inspiring and deeply useful and I stole them liberally <laughs> for many presentations. And I followed Leela Fever and Sashi Lefever over the last couple of years as their business has evolved in, you know, from a services-based business into a product-based business. And now Lee has just announced the launch, I saw on LinkedIn the other day, of his book called Big Enough, which he describes in part as sort of an antidote to the growth-obsessed uh, ideology of the typical US Silicon Valley, Seattle-based tech starter type business. We just had a really great conversation about, you know, why the book came to be, what it's about, who it's designed for, some of the lessons that uh, Lee and Sachi have learned in their journey as the co-owners of Common Craft, and just this really amazing business that adds enormous value to the world, is important as a an advocate and an educator in a time when we really need to understand the technology that we use and the impact that it has on our lives. Thank you again for listening to the One-Eyed Band podcast. If you enjoy this show, please feel free to pass it on uh, to friends and colleagues that might benefit as well. But without any further ado, this is Lee Lefever. Lee, thank you so much for joining me. It is a beautiful, cool spring day almost here in Johannesburg. I'm not sure what the weather's looking like your side, but I'm really stoked to be chatting to you, my friend. Thanks for taking time out to talk to me about this new book. It's great to be here, Mike. In my research for today's show, Lee, I went back into what I felt like a time machine, visiting the Common Craft website and and stumbling across some of those early videos that you guys created. I mean, must be like mid-2000s. And I couldn't help but be overwhelmed by nostalgia. <laughs> I think <laughs> some of that was uh, remembering all of the presentations where I liberally stole your content to try and help people understand what social media was about. But also because I, I think, you know, just realizing how far this environment that we do work in has evolved since then and how much has changed. But for people who aren't familiar with the Common Craft story, could you maybe give us sort of the, the movie trailer version of how it came to be and what the spark was behind the Common Craft idea? Yeah, sure. I might not do it in the classic movie trailer voice, but uh, I'll try. Um, <laughs> do your bit. <laughs> yeah. You know, Common Craft started as a consulting company in 2003. I was just an, an independent individual consultant and got really into the idea of online communities and uh, social media and really wanted people to adopt social media because I saw it as a, 
a beneficial, mostly free, uh, fairly easy to use thing. And it seemed like that a lot of the people communicating about social media at the time were technologists, people who knew a lot about the features and the specifications. And and then in 2007, my wife Sachi joined the company and we started thinking about different directions for Common Craft and YouTube was just starting to crank up. And we said, you know, what if we make videos that explain technology in a way that our parents could understand, for instance? And it was Sachi's idea to use um, a format that became known as Common Craft Style, which was paper cutouts on a whiteboard, along with markers and hands. It's like you're looking over someone's shoulder at the whiteboard. And at the time was just to increase the adoption of social media through understanding. And to our surprise, those videos really were viral hits at the time and established us as explainers and as video producers, which is kind of hilarious because we had no experience in video production before that moment. Um, uh, but here we are. We're still video producers today. So uh, I think uh, part of it was just good timing that we uh, saw the potential to do videos just when YouTube, both YouTube and social media were were really just starting to take off. Yeah, I'm sure there is an element of luck. That I think you're being humble because, <laughs> you know, I think back to, to that time and how you rightly point out that there was definitely a sense of a strong technological community that that understood the sort of underlying DNA of what was happening on, on the internet and had a good sense of how to make use of it or build things out of it. And then there was, I guess, a, a sort of advertising community. And but, but there was very few people who sort of sat in the middle that knew how to translate um, these kind of fringe, geeky concepts into something useful for ordinary people. And, and while you might have been lucky, there certainly was some skill in that. And obviously, you rightly point out Sachi's vision in, in terms of these you know, really beautiful images, and I'm sure that was a part of it as well. But what is it about you guys that enables you to, whether it's through metaphor or whether it's, I guess, through just your use of language... Is it really hard to do what you do? Yeah, no, sure. Um, it's a good question. I think that we work as a team, and Sachi and I have very different approaches to almost everything. She's a very analytical uh, person, very you know incisive kind of person, and I'm more creative and free-flowing. And together, we make a good team. I am the person who writes the first versions of the scripts. I put together the storyboards. I'm more of the creative side. And I've actually talked a lot or thought a lot about like, what is my attraction to that? I've always loved communication. I've always loved, you know, the challenge of helping someone understand something new. And I think that part of that is that the way that my brain works is that I think that I honestly have to work a little bit harder to understand things sometimes. I don't, I, I've never been diagnosed with anything, you know, like a learning disability, but I feel like that my brain needs a little extra help. In understanding things. So I think that I'm able to empathize more readily with the feeling of not understanding something or even recognizing when something's being communicated in a way that's not as understandable as it could be. I'm really highly tuned to that. And I think that that's where some of our focus on explanation and communication comes from is I don't like the feeling of not understanding and I want to help others feel that things can be more accessible than they can imagine. I totally identify with that though. I wear this wrongly attributed moniker of being a technology early adopter and I'm actually a Luddite in the closet and I just, 
they really have to work hard to understand things. But I think one of the upsides of that is because I need to find metaphors and comparisons and analogies and stories to make sense of these things. Sometimes those can be useful for other people as well. The work that you do has quite a strong sense of compassion is the wrong word, but like empathy, kind of humanity attached to it, right? Like you understand the application and the impact of technologies for for people, ordinary people, for, for non-technologists. Where does that kind of human insight come from? What is the inspiration behind that? Yeah, I think that, you know, once our videos, what we call our original videos, which are videos that we produce that are our property, we just had the idea and made them. We also made videos that will continue to do both. We get hired to make videos from time to time. And we always loved and I still enjoy making all the videos, but the original ones are always the ones that I feel most connected to. And what I think is different about those, along with being our property, our our project, is that they don't really have an agenda outside of education. They're not selling anything. They don't have a political agenda or a cause. It's just really pure understanding. And I think that when you take the sales motivations out, when you take the baggage of agendas out, then what you're left with is just humans talking to each other. And I think that there's there's a kind of quiet power in that. So Lee, you know, you, you create these videos, you have this, whether it's a kind of a perfect storm of luck and insight and capability and access and, and the, you really were a viral sensation. I mean, even here in the deepest, darkest corners of, of Johannesburg, <laughs> we were showing the videos on pull up uh, uh, PowerPoint presentation screens. But things changed really quickly, right? Because as much as it was sort of a project at first, this became something that people wanted more of and and it grew really rapidly. As it became more commercially viable as a product, did you feel like that created some tension around this, as as you kind of alluded to, this sort of altruistic educational inspiration, you as the teacher did you find that you ran into a bit of kind of a tension or a compromise around you as the teacher and you as the salesperson? <laughs> well, I think that I've always felt like I wanted to be more of the teacher than the salesperson. I think that the tension might also come down to, you know, the the overall direction of our company and, and what we wanted to become. So the, those first videos kind of established us as the, you know, the original explainers or the people that had, that had done the first explainer video. So we had a lot of demand for a number of years. And there was a lot of tension between us about like, what do we do with this opportunity? Like, how do we make sure that this opportunity goes in the direction that we want? And because we'd love to be doing this for decades. Like, how do we make decisions in these early days that will influence our direction so that we can make sure that we're in control of it. And I think that it really came down to asking ourselves, like, what do we want to be? And we're better and more useful, I think, as educators than salespeople. And uh, I think we can we can help people with sales. Like, we're not we don't like making commercials or anything, but. I think the explanation is inevitably a part of sales and it can be a powerful part of that. But when it comes down to the work that we feel most comfortable doing, it's really more about just education and explanation for its own sake. Yeah. There's also that old adage that, you know, marketing or advertising is the price you pay for a bad product and uh, <laughs> yours is an astonishingly good product. So I guess in many ways it, it sold itself, but 
I imagine over time, and especially if you consider the environment uh, that you guys are building this in, you're watching these social media sites around you explode and you're looking at numbers, you know, people purchasing YouTube and acquisitions left, right, the center. And you must be thinking, wow, we could be on the cusp of an empire. Did you have those moments where you were like, this is the way to do it? Or was it always kind of in your mind, a business that was going to be built around your vision and values and ideals? There was a really big discussion between us. We, from the very early days, were home-based with just two of us working from home. And we definitely talked a lot about the potential to grow and hire producers and potentially build a team and have a creative agency built around the sort of Common Craft brand and look and feel. And I think we could have done that. We had you know, kind of overwhelming demand for a while, but we had at the same time, a lot of conversations about what we really wanted. And in 2008, so about a year or maybe a year and a half after those original videos were published, and we had a lot of demand for our work. We had worked it with Google by then, and that that was something that really kind of took us to a new level of visibility. We kind of had this, you know, come to Jesus kind of meeting where we were really going to decide what we were going to do. And at that meeting in 2008, we really made the decision that we were going to apply a set of constraints to the business that were going to ensure that it was a business that supported the things that mattered to us. And it was at that moment where we said that we would still need to make custom videos, still doing services, but we would actually put our main focus on the side of the business that involved um, licensing our original videos. So this meant selling digital downloads via our website of videos like wikis in plain English that a teacher or a presenter or a founder or whoever else could use in a presentation or use on their intranet. And we give them a nice downloadable version via our website, which was an experiment we had been running for the past year. And what we saw in that opportunity was that building a team, building a bigger company, there's certainly advantages. We probably could have made a lot more money. But that model, as people in business know, the services model doesn't scale without hiring a lot of people. (laughs) And growing requires more people and more overhead. And we saw this opportunity of licensing, even though it was really small at the time, as this really interesting model where we could turn videos into a product and make one video once and sell it multiple times. And that would allow us to scale rapidly if we we had the opportunity uh, and remain a small company and work from home just like we had been. Um, So that was really what was on our mind was you know, can we actually do that? Could we remain a small company from home, but still offer a product on a global scale that can scale, that we can sell a lot of in, every day and not need to hire you know, a big team to do it? A lot of people listening to this might not fully appreciate the gravitas of what you're talking about, because I, I've run services businesses and I have friends who've run services businesses and I've never met anyone who's run a services business that hasn't said, gee, I'd really like to productize some of this IP, (laughs) build an annuity revenue stream and have thousands of people licensing my product around the globe, right? It is the, it is the Holy grail, uh, the Mount Everest of the, you know, anybody who operates in that services knowledge worker space. And I remember having a conversation with a good friend of mine, Thomas Otter, who was at uh, Gartner at the time, a couple of years ago, he was out from, 
Germany and visiting me here and we're standing on the balcony of the Cerebral offices and, and we were talking about this very thing because we were trying to build an academy specifically to productize some of our IP. And he said to me, you know, Mike, I, I consult to services business, technology businesses on a daily basis. I haven't met one yet that's been able to do both properly because the one always lands up cannibalizing the other, right? Inevitably, you're, you're, you're constantly having to manage the temptation of the low-hanging fruit that comes with the instantaneous revenue of services with the promise of this really nice yield that comes out of a beautiful product. So on behalf of everybody listening to this podcast and hating you right now, <laughs> how the hell did you get that right? How did you do that? <laughs> you know, I think it has to do with us maintaining a very small team, being the two of us. Because we're small, because we're a couple working from home, the financial risk that goes along with with moving into a product from a service, um, you know, is minimized when you and your wife are the only ones who are going to feel the pain. You know, you don't feel this duty to be making sort of a fiduciary decision about your employees and their funding and having to take on services to pay them. We were prepared to sort of live a lifestyle that didn't demand a business that had huge immediate income coming in every month or every week. And we could kind of weather the storm for long enough to get our licensing going so that we didn't have to depend on services. Because in the beginning, licensing worked, but it was a fraction of what we could make. I mean, a really small fraction of what we could make if we had fully gone into services. The lesson to me there is just low overhead, like not like we had low overhead. So we didn't have a lot of fixed costs that demanded us to take on projects in the short term. We could play a much longer game because we didn't have those fixed costs. Is there a, an explainer video in the pipeline for how to create products by maintaining low overheads in a service business? Just checking for a friend. <laughs> it's not currently on the docket, but uh, I will add it to the list. Can I, yeah, can I pop it on the? Can I pop it on the? <laughs> sure. you, you, you're talking about both a practical decision, but also a, a philosophical ideal, where you and Satya are able to sit down have a series of conversations, some of them really tough, to decide, in essence, what enough looks like. What is enough for us from a revenue, from a workload, from a lifestyle perspective, creates the perfect balance for, I guess, from a utilitarian perspective, optimal happiness, right? And that, that ideology is, I guess, the spark that created this book that will uh, arrive on our desks in, in just a month's time. Is that correct? <laughs> That's right. That's right. I think that the book is the summary of the last 10 years, I think, of doing, of doing Common Craft. And it, and it hasn't been necessarily, you know, one whole decade of us thinking from this big enough perspective in the book per se. I mean, we did decide to be small and we did decide to do licensing. And, you know, there's a lot of business models that we tried along the way. But I think that those early days, I was still, you know, I, I was driven uh, for a lot of things. But I think that what's changed is early on, and I think that this has been true for a long time for, for a lot of people that, you know, you have this vision of what success means as a business person, like what it looks like or, or what it looks like to live the good life. And over time, I came to see, and this is fairly recently, just in the last few years, maybe, that 
the ideal of success that I'd had in my mind was not something that I didn't, that I actually really thought would make me happy or that was the right thing for me. And I started to reconsider what really success means or what the good life means. And, and what I realized was like, I can be happier with a different version of success that doesn't have to be a growing company or a million employees or a bunch of, you know, investment dollars or whatever that is that there is a quality of life factor that goes along with that. And that if I can be healthy and make a, a decent living and support myself and live in a place that I like and work from home, then to me, that looks like success. And I, I want to be able to retire comfortably and I want to have nice things. And I still, you know, there's, there's all that that goes along with it. But I think that this, this idea of like success, success can mean a lot of different things and everybody it really comes down to your, your values. And I think that some people outsource their values to the capitalist ideal of what success is versus what, what's really going to make them as people happy. Um, and I think that's part of what, what's a big part of Big Enough. If this is your first time listening to The One-Eyed Man and you're wondering what I'm trying to achieve here, why don't you take a moment to go back to the trailer episode at the beginning of season one. It's really short, I promise, and will give you some insight and context. If you're enjoying the show, please consider sharing this episode or the One-Eyed Man channel with, well, all of your friends in the entire world. And now, back to the show. So I think it's a really interesting phrase to use, that this notion of the capitalist ideal, because I think there's nothing that's not capitalist about your business. I mean, it's not like you're giving everything away for free, or, but the point is that you were able to establish parameters um, soft boundaries, if you like, for, and one of those was the size of our business, as an example. And I mean, I, I have many conversations with people who go, well, how many employees do you have? Like, that's a good measure of success, you know, or, um, and that's not taking anything away from organizations that hire tens of thousands of people. It's an incredible achievement and it creates jobs and it creates value and it, it builds economies. I'm not, I'm not saying that's not a measure of value. I'm saying it's not the only measure of value, you know, or margin or uh, just the revenue line or whatever it might be. And, and I think, you know, was it difficult to maintain those? I remember a time where in the early days of Cerebra, where I used to fantasize about what might happen if I ever sold that business for X amount of money. And then I remember those goalposts moving very quickly. <laughs> and if, if you told that guy in 2005 that he would get paid what he landed up getting paid in, not that it was a lot of money, but relative to what I thought uh, success looked like 10 years before that, my goalposts had shifted significantly. And then even then I wasn't happy, right? Because that's not the right measure. Tell me about how you defined and codified those parameters and, and whether you found them shifting or not. There were a few constraints. So it was, you know, we'd stay small, work from home. But another one was regarding time that we would have a long-term perspective. We call the sort of licensing idea a long game versus a short game. Mm-hmm. I think that's true with a lot of intellectual property is you, it takes time to build up intellectual property. And I think that we had to prepare ourselves to, uh, you know, focus on it for years and build it up over time. And I think that there was this tension, and I hope I'm answering your question, is we could make custom videos and make a, and earn a good living that way. And it wasn't just that we switched it off and it just suddenly we just are doing something different. It was more of like, 
a transition where, you know, it's easier to look at it on a graph, but a curve where the growth of the licensing would slowly overtake the custom side of the business. And that took time to do. But we were lucky to be able to kind of pull the trigger on custom videos as we needed to kind of help that licensing revenue pick up and, and cover for the rest of it. So those constraints are not necessarily hard and fast rules that you carve out on a stone and mount on the wall in the, in the living room. They are more softer agreements, if you like, sort of soft contractual agreements between the two of you that are, I guess, essentially shared values more than anything else, right? Yeah, definitely. We looked around. We lived in Seattle at the time. I, I live outside of Seattle now, but we lived in Seattle for 20 years. And there's a, an active tech community there. And we know a lot of founders of companies. And And I say in the book, like, big enough is not an indictment of people who pursue high growth startups. Like, I think that's amazing. Some of those people are my heroes. Like, we need more people who are prepared to do that. I just don't think that it's for everyone or that it's necessarily what that, that's the only way to do it. But we saw what happens to people's lives. <laughs> and for many of them, they're more than happy to, to take that risk that they're going to put 80-hour weeks for years on the bet that they can come out on the other side with a, a level of income or money that, that they can retire or they can do something different or finally live the good life. And I don't think that we felt like that that was a risk that we wanted to take. We wanted to sort of do it now. Um, you know, it's kind of like Tim Ferriss refers to saving for retirement your whole life until you're 65 or, or whatever, and then you're kind of too old to enjoy it. And he, he calls it the deferred life. And I read the four-hour work week back then, and it really meant a lot to me at the time. And I think that we saw that, you know, can we build this business and can we make these decisions in a way that allows us to live a good life? The goal is never to retire, but to just see our lives as something that we're not deferring, that we're actually living now. Yeah. That takes some discipline, right? Because there is always the thief of comparison, you know, that's constantly kind of, or, you know, what everybody else is maybe doing or achieving. And I know certainly in my weaker moments, I'm subject to a lot of kind of like, wow, man, like, look what that person, we were the same back then. And now we're the, look where they are and that kind of, so that can be something that can be quite competitive and overwhelming, but it, it probably hasn't been all plain sailing, right? I'm sure you've had moments, <laughs> and I'm sure there are books. I don't want you to have to feel like you have to spoil the book, but can you sort of talk us through what's what you did in terms of kind of principles or decision making when when it was really tough over the last couple of years? Sure, sure. You know, I think that this isn't necessarily an answer to when it became tough, I think that when it, when it became tough, it's, it's almost like an interpersonal thing between us of, of keeping up the confidence. I think that's the thing. Like Sachi is a very confident person and someone who has an attitude of like, grow up, get through this. We got this kind of an idea. And she really helps a lot because I'm a little more on the anxious side of that. So she, she is just very strong-willed and I, I owe her a lot uh, of getting through those times where I feel like it's not working. You know, that's the fear is like, we've made all these decisions. We've, we've done these constraints. We're moving in this direction that we feel like we don't, we're still learning about. And I'm always concerned, like, is it working or not? And there's definitely times where I feel like it's not working. We shouldn't have done this. It's going to go away soon. All this is going to be for naught. But everybody has those feelings, mm, and, cool. and and she, and she she's she's sort of our rock for for getting through that. But I do 
think that there is one idea that is in the book that I think has been really powerful for us. And this, this goes back to the early days too, of, uh, you know, if you're an entrepreneurial person, if you're a business person, you often see opportunities in a lot of places and you think, ah, oh, that could be a business that could be something that could really, really grow or be good. And I often ask this really essential question, I think is what if it works? Like if that opportunity actually works and you end up doing that every day, talking to those people every day, and it being what you wake up in the morning thinking about and going to bed thinking about, is that what you want? And if it's not, then maybe that's not the business for you. Like maybe if you can extrapolate what you think is going to happen, not over just the next six months, but over three, five years, then that kind of can highlight how your life might change and, and really help you understand what you're prepared for and what you're not. Yeah, big time. Who are you hoping will pick up the book in an airport and, and read it on a plane? And how are you hoping it will impact their worldview or, or their lives? Um, I think that it's for people who um, are interested in being entrepreneurial or interested in starting a business or maybe, and that could be people who are working in a corporate environment now or working wherever and just are curious what are the models? What are the things that you can do to earn a living at a smaller scale, you know, without starting a big startup? So you can call them entrepreneurs is one of the things you might say. There's more life lessons uh, along with some business lessons. But I think that the impact that I would love for the book to have is to help people see that there is real power in reevaluating what what factors really lead to this feeling of happiness and their perception of success and the good life and seeing that that bigger is not what does that for everyone. For some people, yes, they always have to have the bigger, better house, car, whatever else. But I think that in their science behind this, that money, money can only go so far in terms of the happiness it can produce and that people might be better off focusing on other things that do make them happy or satisfied and see that they actually can achieve the good life. It might not be driving a nicer car. It might be having more time with family or living in their dream location. And I want people to feel satisfied um, with their life. I think a lot of people are aiming, are aiming at something that, you know, if they could live the lives of the people that they're aiming to towards, they might not want to do that. <laughs> Money becomes baggage. You know, I mean, no, I'm not speaking from myself. I'm just saying the research shows that people, people who, who have become unbelievably wealthy are, are not unbelievably happy. <laughs> it all, money, money brings a lot of things. And that I just want people to think about a more modest, accessible version of success and to be okay with that. Yeah. Part of it is, is almost about changing some of the conversation around the entrepreneurial ideal. I mean, you've, you've already alluded to the fact that you lived in Seattle and that is a very active tech community. But on the same side and a little south uh, is this other community in San Francisco that is, I've got to be careful here because I tend to do this a lot. I tend to sound very anti-Silicon Valley, very anti-VC, but it's not necessarily that. It's, it's anti the, in some instances, quite cultish behavior exclusionary behavior that tends to typify the worst versions of those communities and creates a version of what it is to be an entrepreneur or a business owner that is 
is not only inaccessible for other people, maybe in other geographies or of other kind of you know, social status, it's quite destructive if you start believing that that's the only way to create value or the only way to be happy. Do you have any thoughts on that? <laughs> As a matter of fact... <laughs> yeah, I, I like to see the book and I like to see our perspective as a, a kind of an antidote to that. There is some of that feeling in Seattle. I think Silicon Valley is the home of of that sort of almost like mercenary culture around uh, startups. And I think that the, the riches of Silicon Valley attracts people who are naturally attuned to working in that environment and going for that. And again, that's where some of the most amazing products and companies have, have come from. I, mean, I think like, to your point, you know, I don't want to sound like I'm down on that, but I think as a cultural part of, of the world, I don't know that it's necessarily, uh, you know, reinforces the, the good things in, in humanity. I think it is a, you know, uh, a pretty cutthroat kind of culture. There's a lot of discussion now about, you know, that, goes the other direction of, of people who are, who are more startup, high growth startup oriented, being very skeptical and kind of maybe even dismissive of lifestyle businesses or smaller kinds of businesses. And I think that one of the things that's changed very recently is with COVID-19, so many people are working from home for the first time, having a lot of free time on their hands. Their society around the world has changed in a lot of ways. Their workplaces are allowing them a lot of freedom and where they can work. And I think that there's a lot of people who are just now realizing like, oh, I don't have to live here. I don't have to have, you know, I don't have to do the things I've always done. This is an opportunity for me to change. And I like to think that people... Uh, are starting to see that the kind of big enough idea of like reevaluating what really matters to them and, and what's going to make them happy in the future. I think hopefully it's becoming more of a healthy perspective that's that's less about that version of Silicon Valley. There's a strange dichotomy between having a long-term view, which can sometimes result in this sort of deferred life behavior, you know, where you're going, I'm planning for the future, I'm saving for my kids, or I'm creating a future for my kids or whatever, that does land up in a slightly uh, stunted approach to, to sort of value creation and, and wellness and well-being. And this notion of a long-term view on happiness it's a weird thing to balance, right? There is there is a tension in that. And I don't think that's a bad thing necessarily, but I you know, I think those tensions are the things that create really interesting thinking and really interesting uh, questions in life. Um but yeah, I mean one of the things to come out of the covid experience, I guess, is what is it that you are absolutely sure about that you probably can't be absolutely sure about? And that's a, that's a really interesting question to ask and how does it make you think differently? about the way you live and the lifestyle you design. I mean, it's, have you seen kind of behavior shifting in your communities or in the businesses that you're working with off the back of some of the experiences of the last six months? I've seen a couple of things. This is not even a COVID thing, but it's sort of analogous. I live off the coast of Washington State on an island called Orcas Island. Um, we've lived here for about a year. And a family that's one of our best friends moved here from the Sacramento area in uh, in California, and he moved up here. The dad moved up here for work at a nonprofit, 
And he's like, our life just totally changed. Like in Sacramento, they had been there for many years and their lives were filled with obligations, you know, and they have two kids. So there were kid things, there were family things, there were nonprofit things, you know, there's just lots going on. And he said that uh, once they moved here and were kind of starting over, they really saw that it was just such a relief not to have so many things going on, not to have so many obligations. And that it made them so happy that they were like gonna not try not do that again. And 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 most people don't set out to have all those obligations. They just trickle through and you turn around and realize that your whole life is is spoken for. Uh, but for them, it was moving that did it. Uh, I think for a lot of people, it's quarantine <laughs> that did that. And they I think that suddenly I, I was speaking to someone the other day who said that, you know, despite all the horrible things happening. I've never been happier than when we've been quarantined. <laughs> and I think it's giving people a glimpse of a, a kind of life they could have that is not full of obligations, that whether it's imposed control or control that they exert, there's power in having some control of your time. And that is definitely what part of what drove us from the very beginning with, with Common Craft and with Big Enough is that we felt that time is the one resource we wanted to maximize. Um, I say in the book that time is the new wealth. I really believe that. No, absolutely. I just looked up pictures of Orcas Island. It's a really neat little microcosm because um, it's a fairly rural island that has suffered from not great internet access. Uh, but just in the last five years, there started to be uh, fiber optic internet connections. And that, that's an example of there being infrastructure changes that are enabling people to think about being able to work in other places. I, I feel like you just described the continent of Africa. Uh, but yes, I think that that's also, <laughs> also true for Orcas Island. Lee, uh, for people who are listening who would love to get their hands on this book, I, I mean, I've ordered an advanced Kindle copy. I just can't wait for it to land. I'm really looking forward to it. What, what are the dates? Where do they look? How can they find out more information? What's everything we need to know? Yes. So Big Enough comes out on September 15th, 2020. The website is bigenough.life. And we are doing some pre-order incentives right now. I really want to encourage people to pre-order because it helps the, the book make a bigger splash when it's launched. Your audience is outside the U.S. I hesitate because we, we're only sending things in the U.S. right now, but uh, we are doing pre-order incentives um, for people who might be listening <laughs> otherwise. But yeah, bigenough.life is is where to go to read the book, find, it, find out about it. Just yesterday, I uploaded some videos about the book on that page. It's at leelafever.com is the same the same website. It's just a URL for the book that's big enough.life. Well, Lee, it's been an enormous pleasure. And it would it's gonna sound a little strange, but it I really am a fan, and not just because I think you've created an incredible business, but because the work that you did in those early days had a massive influence on my business. And uh, maybe it wouldn't have been what it was if not for the work that you put into those early videos. So, you know, from everybody who was around back in the dark ages and loved that work and learned so much from it. Just a, a big thank you from all of us. And thank you for your kind of magnanimous approach to sharing that content earlier on for being a teacher. And it's just been a real pleasure following your journey and watching you and Sachi grow um, as, as a unit and as a business. And yeah, I just wish you every, every success with the book and the business in future. 
I really appreciate that, Mike. Thank you for saying that. And I really appreciate that you've been um, you've been with us for so long. Like I said early on, you, you know, I remember seeing your name in the earliest days. And, and here we are probably 12 or 13 years later. So I'm really excited to uh, reconnect with you. Cool, man. Uh, looking forward to chat to you soon. And I'll look out for the book when it lands. Great. Thanks so much, Mike. Thanks. You've been listening to the One-Eyed Man podcast. I'm Mike Stopforth an entrepreneur, writer, and public speaker, deeply curious about discovering better ways to lead and better ways to live in an increasingly complex world. I find the best source of these ideas is the experience and wisdom of interesting people who are taking unconventional approaches to solving the world's most compelling problems. If you'd like to hear from someone I haven't yet spoken to, visit mikestopforth.com, click on the podcast link, and send through your suggestions. A big thanks to the Solid Gold Podcast Studios in Johannesburg, South Africa for making this production possible. And remember, in the land of the blind, a one-eyed man slash person is king. You've been listening to another episode from the Solid Gold Podcast Studios.